Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to get right to the point. Um, Ever since I was a kid, as far back as I can remember, I was being taken to church. Um, I was born in 1966, and uh, there wasn't a time in my childhood, in my youth, even in my young adulthood, and my middle adulthood that I did not go to church somewhere, somehow with someone, whether it was a uh, revival under a tent or an old backwoods country church with uh, shutters on the windows and fans in everybody's hands and wooden uh, benches that we sat on. I have always been in church ever since I was a kid. Even as a kid, I went to um, summer camp, which was sponsored by a church that we attended. And it was an intense week of biblical training, Bible study, prayer, (coughs) song, uh, crafts, and uh, things like archery and and, uh, swimming and things like that. Stuff that kids would enjoy, you know. Pretty much a controlled environment. I wasn't opposed to it. Um, as I as I was a kid and I heard about Jesus, I heard about God, and I always I always thought of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit as three separate entities. Uh, the Spirit I always thought of as sort of a mist, you know, uh, spiritual mist. You know, and God, I thought of this older, bearded, sort of Santa Claus looking guy that, you know, maybe more like like the Greek mythology, Zeus sitting up on a throne somewhere up in the heavens with clouds all around him and all these angels waiting to destroy us. And Jesus was sort of the go between the, you know, the the human looking bearded. Jesus that we always saw in all of the Bible stories and he was nice and he was full of grace and mercy and you know and then then there was the devil who was ugly of course and looked like a like a goat you know with hooves and had a pitchfork and there was a place that, that he lived sort of his his uh office was hell and there were flames everywhere and and uh you know he had all these demons that followed him and Anyone who was bad and didn't believe in Christ and died went to this, went to his, basically his office, where the hell was, and uh, suffered there for the all of eternity. And that was pretty much my belief. I, I saw God as a pissed off God who, you know, just just about wiped out his entire creation because we didn't do what he wanted to do, you know, and... Um, I was terrified of God, and it didn't help that my father was also a very mean person. He was very big and very mean. And um, so the, the, the relationship that I have with my father, you know, I, I know it's, it's true that we associate the, the, the relationship we have with the Father in heaven. So I was always terrified the Father in heaven was mad at me, and it was just a matter of time before I was going to hell. You know, as a child, it was because I was, you know, back talking or, you know, saying things I shouldn't say or, 
you know, not being the perfect Christian. And so I wasn't really sure if I was going to heaven. There was always that fear of, you know, was I going to heaven? Was I saved? When I died, would I go to heaven? Because on my father's side, who was holiness, Pentecostal, I would go to church and every every sermon would be some man behind the pulpit screaming and yelling and talking about hell and the flame fires and how God was going to get us. And, you know, if you weren't saved, you're going to bust hell wide open. And so, you know, as a child, I was I was at the altar a lot, you know, because as a kid, I had a lot to repent of, you know, especially as I got older and I realized what girls were. You know, I had four older brothers, so it didn't take me long to realize what girls were. You know, I knew what a vagina was. I knew what, you know, breasts were, and I knew what an attractive girl was, and I knew what I wanted to do with them. And so that began a, uh, you know, a, golly, a long time of where my mind was stuck on girls in church. I'd see girls in church, and I'd, you know, before I realized it, I had them undressed. I was, you know, having sex with them. I mean, in my mind, of course. And then, of course, there was the shame and the, and the, uh, the, the fear, you know, and I'd feel badly about it because, you know, I, I would be told by the preacher that it was evil and, you know, it was bad and, you know, and that, you know, boys that did that were going to hell and there was just no way. And I just thought, you know, there's just no way I'm ever going to make it to heaven. I'm way too bad. Uh, people like me don't go to heaven. We go straight to hell and burn forever. So I'd sort of resolved it that, you know, I was just going to die and go to hell. And um, there wasn't wasn't really anything I could do that I'd pissed off God way too many times. You know, I'd thought about too many girls too many times. And, you know, it was always sexual in in nature. And, you know, and that didn't stop. That didn't stop, even though they were in the church. Um, And then when I got into high school, it seemed to get worse. I had my first girlfriend, you know, we began to have sex. And of course, each time we had the shame that built with that. And, you know, and, uh, you know, once you start having sex with somebody, you don't go back to holding hands. And I loved it. It was great. It felt wonderful. It was, you know, for me, it was, it was a closeness that I shared with her that, you know, brought me close to her and, and made me feel, you know, more like the relationship we had was deeper and, and of course we were young and, you know, that's the, your first love and your, your emotions are raw. Well, um, as I became a young adult and I got to college, it got worse. Um, I was sleeping with every girl that would sleep with me and there was no limit to who would sleep with me. And, you know, I just kind of felt like, you know, I'm going to hell anyway. It doesn't really matter. Um, you know, and I, and I vacillated between my father's side of the raising of, of Pentecostal holiness to my mother's side, which was Southern Baptist. Now, they believed that, you know, once saved, always saved. You were, you were good. You just had to be baptized. And so part of me be, uh, believed that, you know, <clears throat> God would have mercy on me and that no matter what I did, I'd still go to heaven. And then, you know, part of me subscribed to uh, what my grandmother uh, on the holiness side believed, which was, you know, I was going to bust hell wide open. So I lived with a dichotomy of fear and I grew up very fearful, but that desire within me to be with girls 
was greater and greater, and I felt badly for that, you know. I couldn't control it. It was a fire that was out of control. I literally could not. It was a forest fire, and I was trying to put it out with a bucket of water. And so um, as time went on, I met my my wife, girlfriend at the time, and, um, you know, we dated for about six months, and, you know, I wore her down, and we finally started having sex. And once we started having sex, you know, as as young adults, you know, in college, we were having sex at, at, at the drop of a hat, and we dropped the hat. We loved it. It felt good. It was great. It was wonderful. We enjoyed each other. And, um, of course, I lived with that shame all the time, too, because here I was going to church, you know. Well, we got married, and I thought maybe it will be a little different. Um, I won't feel the way I feel, but that was not true. I still looked at other women. You know, I still wanted other women. And... Um, I knew as a as a as a husband that was absolutely not what I wanted or not that not what I shouldn't want I should say but I couldn't help it and I thought I was just so filled with this it was like 90% of my brain was filled with with sex with other girls and and women at the time and you know and and it didn't didn't slow down at all until I hit about 50 and I'm 56 so it slowed down at 50 and the last 6 years I've kind of, I've really slowed down a lot as far as, you know, that 90% of my brain being, you know, attracted to the opposite sex. Now, I'm not blind. You know, I see girls today in the yoga pants and, you know, in the tight pants and whatever. And I appreciate it, but it's not that I'm going, taking it further and thinking about, you know, leaning them across the car hood and, you know, plowing them. Um, it's, it's more of a, I appreciate the beauty. Um, but I move on. It's not something that stays in my mind. Now, I say all that to say this. It's not because I'm super holy now. It's not because I've arrived spiritually in that, you know, it's simply that the hormones in my body have stopped producing such high levels that um, I don't have that desire anymore. But I bet if, the, if I had the hormones, I'd probably feel the same way. So there's another dichotomy. Am I, am I better because of hormones or am I better because of spirituality? So which leads me to the next sub subject. Throughout life, I have always been involved in church, either as the worship director. I was worship director at one, two, three, four churches. Four separate churches, I was a worship pastor. And um, I liked what I did. Um, it was fun. It was, it was, I love music, but I didn't always agree with what the pastors were saying. And, um, this is where it's probably going to get a little muddy for some of you that are listening. Um, when I look at the, the involvement that I had in church where I was a youth pastor. My, my wife and I were both children's pastors. We worked uh, with babies. We worked with children. I worked with youth. Uh, she worked with youth. Um, you know, I, I, aside from doing the, uh, the music ministry, um, you know, I, I also was an evangelist, went out and evangelized around the world. Um, so I've always been involved in, in, in ministry to the point to where I guess I'm predicating all this because what I'm going to say is you're, you, you may have arguments against it. So to say all that, when my son Miles died, 
um, it created a serious um, crisis in faith for me. Uh, now, this has been 15, 16 years ago. So I've had time to live with the loss and understand that it's just simply what it is. You know, I was not unique to the world to lose a son. Um, it's, it's, you know, I was not the only person, basically. Anyway, I had a crisis of faith because I thought that I was so plugged into church, which you're going to hear is a, is a term that churches use, plugged in. And I was so active in church and I was doing all these things in church and I was, you know, preaching the word and I was singing the word and I was playing the word and I was doing all these things, you know. And then all of a sudden my son is born and he's born with the, with all kinds of problems from having a stroke in utero and, you know, he lives 11 days and I hold him in my arms and watch him die for two hours. And um, it messed my world up because I prayed to God that he would save him. And I read the scriptures and I didn't think I had misinterpreted the scriptures, you know, because it said, let the elders of the church come and lay hands on, on the sick and they shall be they shall be saved or they shall be healed. And so I believed every word of the Bible, okay? So, of course, when that didn't happen, all of a sudden inside of me, I'm like, okay, what did I misunderstand? So I went back and I read the verse again, and I read it again, and I looked at it, and I, and I, and I really thought about it. And what it did to me was it created inside of me a fear that maybe the scriptures weren't correct. And, and I know you're probably thinking, oh, no, he's gone off the deep end. But listen, the Bible itself, as we know it today, has been written, rewritten over 200 times since the 1611 King James Version. Well, I never knew that. But because of this crisis of faith, I was like, you know, I'm going to learn everything I can that I thought I knew, but I really don't know. So I'm going to learn that. And so by learning that, what I did was I found out that there was a lot of things that I just assumed that I knew. <clears throat> I just assumed were right. And because I assumed it, it was wrong. And so one of the things was salvation. You know, when I look at salvation, you know, and I look at the thief on the cross, here's a man who obviously did something wrong. He knew he did something wrong. <clears throat> and yet on the cross, he said to the other thief, look, we, we deserve to be up here. This man, speaking of Jesus, did nothing wrong. And yet he is dying up here. And he looked at Jesus and he said, all I ask is that you would remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was it. That was it. That was the most simplistic prayer I've ever heard with someone who's talking about salvation. Even though the thief didn't know it was salvation he was asking for. But he said, remember me. Okay, now that's the way it was written. Now it's been transcribed and it's been you know, through the ages, it's, you know, we don't know that he said, remember me. He might have said something else. But the gist of it was, this guy believed that Jesus was who he was, was supposed to be. And he believed that he had a kingdom that would eventually come to pass. And if this kingdom came to pass, then this man had a place in the kingdom. And so I think he knew that Jesus would take care of him. So it's it's like 
he may not have completely understood the fact that he was, you know, the king of kings and lord of lords and that his kingdom was not of this world. But what the man did understand, what he, what he absolutely understood, was that, that Jesus was strong enough that wherever he was going, he could take care of this man. And this man would not go to, uh, you know, an evil place that he had thought that he would go to. Okay. Now, the other thief, of course, you know, came at it from a different angle. Hey, if you're, if you're really, if you're truly Jesus, if you're truly God, the King of Kings, then why don't you call down legions of angels and, you know, rescue us? So there was a, there was two different schools of thought there. You know, the other guy was more or less saying, if you are that person, but the, but the other thief basically said, you know, I, you know, when you come into your kingdom, you know, basically saying, hey, I believe you're the king of kings. I believe that you are who you say you are. And so we all believe that that man went to heaven. Well, now, if you flash forward, okay, or fast forward to the future, to modern day uh, Bible study, and you were to ask a pastor who was Church of Christ, did that thief on the cross go to heaven or hell? I know because I've asked this question. And I actually asked this question when I was a kid. And I remember asking a Church of Christ pastor. Now, Church of Christ, you probably don't know this, but they believe that salvation, that baptism is absolutely 100% essential to salvation. Okay, And there are other churches that have absolute essentials attached to salvation as well, and I'll talk about them. But he believed that, that this pastor believed that you know everyone must be baptized to go to heaven. And so I argued with him, and I said, well, consider the thief on the cross. Neither was he baptized, neither did he say, Jesus, come into my heart. And I remember what he said. This, pa this pastor said, well... That's a different situation. God made a provision for that. And I said, oh, really? And I said, what about all the people in Africa who can barely afford to, to drink water? How do they get baptized? He said, God makes provisions for that. And so I would come up with these ideas and, and he would say, God makes provisions. And it sounded to me like, you know, he didn't really believe that baptism was so essential because if it were essential, he would have said, you know, no matter what, you'd get baptized. I don't like the idea that someone attaches baptism as essential, uh, essential for salvation. And so I didn't like the Church of Christ for that reason. And I thought that they were very much dogmatic, a lot like other churches out there. Now, I happened to spend time in the, um, the Baptist church and the Southern Baptist and, you know, they believe once saved, always saved. They believe that, you know, baptism is necessary, but it's not essential. But you should get baptized. They, they push the baptism thing because of John the Baptist. And I've worked, I've worked uh, deeply with the Church of God. Now, they are wrapped up in so much religion, it is, it is beyond my understanding, honestly. The Church of God believes that if a person does not speak in tongues that there is no evidence, no outward evidence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, that person is not saved. 
They believe that you can be saved one day and lost another day. Now, you may ask some Church of God pastors this, and they might say, oh, that's not true. We don't believe that. But that is true, and that is what they teach. I know that to be a fact. And I never liked the fact that, you know, I could be saved or couldn't be saved. And they also believe that if you don't ask for all your sins, forgiveness before you die, then you go straight to hell. So I'm saying all this because I'm building a case. Now, as I have left traditional mainline church and became part of non-denominational charismatic churches, they had their own issues, you know, um, and I saw this consistently as I would go from one church to the other. Not that I moved a lot of churches, um, but that as, you know, as I moved from geographical area to geographical area, I did always find a church. And my wife and I have been part of a church now going on six years. And uh, I see that it's no different than all the other churches that I have gone to. There is a, uh, a be- well, I shouldn't say belief. Um, I have, si- well, how do I say this without sounding arrogant? I'm probably going to sound very arrogant when I say this, but, um, and if I do, it, it is what it is. I have summed up churches today, okay, in two words. And you're probably not going to like this, but I'm going to break them down for you when I say them. But the two words that sums up the Western Institution Church in America is recruit and retain. Now, recruit, obviously, they're always trying to bring people into the church. They'll have mail-outs. They'll have people going out into the community. They'll, they'll have VBS in the summer to get kids involved, so hopefully they'll get their parents involved. Um, there, are, there are Easter celebrations where they'll have handouts where they can give to people because they know that you know, most people only come to church on Easter and on Christmas. And so there's always that outreach program to recruit new people. Now, why in the world would you want to recruit recruit people? Well, your first thought would be, well, of course we want to recruit people because we want to see people get saved, okay? Um, But when someone gets saved and someone comes into the church, the first thing the church does is they, or our church, is they educate them. You know, there's, there's there's what's called a core class. And you educate them in such a way that they're educated to the politics of the church, the the hierarchy, the pastor is at the top, you know, and then the pastor's below him, and then and then the you know the the uh, uh, those those who teach the children or or do Sunday school, and those who are on the praise team, and then you know then the volunteers, and then then there's the at the bottom there's the members of the church, and. Of course, you know, they may or may not have a board. It may be church. Uh, it may be, um, what do they call that? Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Congregationally um, ruled, uh, where every member gets a vote and every member can vote. and Or it may be just simply board ruled, which is usually simpler if it's board ruled because you may have a board of five people and um, that board consists of your treasurer, your... your um, uh, your chairman, your president, whatever. At any rate, once you come into the church, you are you are exposed to the politics of how the church works. The next thing you are um, you're 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 sort of fit into the church to find a place. 
you know, because they want you to serve. That's important for church for you to serve because that's free labor. That's labor they don't have to pay. You will show up. You'll do it. Uh, and the reasons you do it vary. But for most people, it's because they feel like they're being, uh, they're being used of God. Or sometimes they feel like it makes them closer to the pastor, closer to the church. Um, you know, or it makes them closer to God. You know, whatever their reason is, they do that. Um, and so you, you recruit and then you, you try to get them put in their place. You try to fit them in. You know, you want them to fit in here. And, you know, that's just another church word for, you know, like plugged in. I'm getting plugged into my church. Um, you're being, you're really being inundated with a lot of information and you're being uh, inundated with, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I, I, for lack of better words, this is what's happening, but, but, but this is exactly what happens when you come into a church, Okay you're you're being um what's the word i'm looking for when you go through boot camp they are um you join a cult it's propaganda but it's their propaganda and they're programming your mind to their propaganda uh and i know that sounds very negative and it has a very negative connotation to it and that's that's not 